I want to kind of shamelessly say that this is a, a subject we've talked about before in the history of restoration, the connection between uh, hearing and understanding, but it comes up at a very timely place in our teaching today. Uh, it really, it's kind of an end cap to this little series we've been doing, or a series within a series, on Jesus being um, our, our Lord. Next week, we're going to look at life change, which is somewhat, uh, I think, very important because you have this whole section where uh, we talk about the love of Jesus and then we're talking about um, Jesus being the Lord of our lives. And then right after all this amazing stuff, Paul says, hey, now go work out your salvation uh, with fear and trembling. And you can see there's almost like a theological equation that he's writing for us here where what we are understanding about God, how we are experiencing his love should begin to shape a change in us. And so we'll spend a few weeks talking about that. But until then, I really want to kind of end cap this little mini series we've been doing on Jesus being both Lord of life and Savior. And so today we're continuing our talk about how now pursuing a relationship with Jesus through the study of his word, one of the main ways we've talked about this, that we can get to know God, is it's one of the greatest ways that you reject the lordship of God in your life. And so to not see Jesus as, uh, to not pursue him in the word basically means there's a, a heart issue in us that says we might not necessarily understand or affirm that Jesus is genuinely our Lord. And so this series began about a month ago when we took a detailed look at this problem uh, that so many people deal with in their lives. They're okay with the concept of Jesus dying for their sins or showing them love and grace, but then there's this great place in the walk of a disciple where Jesus begins to call us to contribute back to him. Where, in other words, we so experience his love and grace that there's a fuel in us that now says, listen, we, we see you as Lord. And by Lord, we mean we want to follow you, Jesus. We want to experience you, Jesus. We want to know you, Jesus, by walking faithfully uh, before you for the rest of our days. And the real tension we brought up in this, knowing Jesus as Lord, is that we could very easily read these passages of Scripture the ones we've already talked about, Philippians, uh, John. We talked about lordship last week from the angle of work, post-Labor Day talk in Colossians. Today we're talking about uh, a teaching in James. It's very easy, I think, for us to say, you know, it was probably much easier when Jesus was standing in front of people to say, here's how I follow you as Lord. But the, the point that I think Scripture makes is that even though Jesus is no longer physically with us, he has given us the ability to still follow him as Lord because he's left us with his eternal truth in, in his Bible. And so if we had to summarize our prior teachings on this matter, it would go something like this. It would say something like this. To truly find a fullness of life in Jesus, to truly find an absolute joy in Jesus, it means that we have to get to this place where we learn to hear the voice of Jesus through his word. Certainly not the only way. We've talked about prayer and community and service. There's a number of ways God speaks to us. But if we eliminate one of these central points, in this case the word, then what happens is we likely begin to develop an understanding about our God that might not actually represent our God. And so the, the header here was that this is another example of rejecting Jesus' authority in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. And so the, the reason that this is important, one last thing I'll say here regarding summary, is that if we as God's people are unwilling to listen to Jesus' voice as the Lord of our lives, it's very likely that over time we will lose sight of who we are in Jesus. To, to stop hearing the voice of Jesus means your identity in him will likely be chipped away at some point. And what happens here is that when you lose your identity in God, when you begin to forget those amazing things he says about his world and us in it and those, those beautiful promises we cling to when times are difficult, right? If we start wiping that out of our minds, if we start pushing the voice of Jesus away from us, then what happens is we will likely start to lose our God-given purposes in Jesus. We all have a meaning and a reason for being here. And so the fabric of our hearts when hearing the voice of God, it really is dialed into a clear and resolute truth. Jesus says what he says. 
He says who we are. He gives us value and prescribes meaning and worth to us. But what can happen is, is if we stop listening to that voice, eventually we might be scattered in a million directions. Or in today's culture, we might be pulled in a million directions. No church or person is immune to this problem. And so that's why it is so important that we learn to hear God's voice in the word. And so with this authority recap in mind today, I want to I want to continue and today close this discussion we began a few weeks ago about the importance of reading the Bible in our lives. And since we've already established the importance of of why we should read the Bible, all this is online. If you want to backtrack or you weren't here to hear that stuff, I certainly encourage you to listen to it. But today's talk will be standalone, meaning this is a valuable truth we can take out of this, even disconnected from those other teachings. But there is a cumulative effect here. So it'll be more valuable if you connect them to those other things we said. Today, we're going to connect this to how we should approach the Bible. We've kind of moved over these past weeks into the, to the practical approach. Like if you say, you get past the authority issue and you say, God, I'm going, to, I'm going to try to learn about you, head, heart, and hands in the scripture. And you actually pick that book up or you pick your app up or whatever it is you do to read the Bible. There's no shortage of ways to do it. What I want to talk about today is con- continuing the vein of what you should expect, how you should approach that. How do you interact with God in the scripture? So to answer this, we refer to the quote we discussed two weeks ago. We'll use it as a springboard uh, to get back into our talk today. And it's from a book called Total Church, which every time we reference it, I would, I'd encourage you to read it. It's written from our Acts 29 Church Planning Network from a, a gentleman named uh, Tim Chester and Steve Timmis. Both of them wrote this book. And it really describes, I think, some of the central themes and ideas of what the modern church is, based on the biblical truth of the historical church. This is what they say about the the centrality of God's scripture in our lives. They say being word-centered, that's the term they use to describe what we have been talking about. Being word-centered is much more than just how you teach and disciple people, meaning it's much more than just the hearing part, which we'll talk about today. It actually has to have a practical effect on life at some point. It means governing church life by God's word. What we do as a body is dictated, directed by the scripture. It means every decision, whether it is in this room, outside of this room, or on Monday morning when we're back in work, It means every decision, formal and informal, is explored through explicit reference to God's word. We ask and re-ask what God's word teaches us about the issues and problems we face. As James says in his epistle, if you wonder why we're in James, this is going to be the reason why. As James says in his epistle, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. You must also do what the word says. And so when we ask this question, right, we've, we've already identified what the Bible is a few weeks ago. Today we ask, how should a person following Jesus read his word? Meaning, God's word is his story about how God invites us back into a genuine relationship with him. It's not just a book of riddles and myths and rules. It's God's, you know, his front page story about himself saying, I'm in the world and I want you to know me. It's a story about relationship. If we truly understand the nature of the scripture like this, then we should approach the word with a desire to listen with our ears and to be willing to do what it says in our hearts. You, to, to have a, a response contrary to that is crazy. Right? If we really believe that this is what God is trying to communicate to us in scripture, that God is our father who loves us deeply and he calls us into this meaningful relationship with him, it would be ludicrous to actually ignore that voice. Now, in other places... Jesus refers to this. This is a a concept all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. Jesus refers to this as the difference between hearing and understanding. He uses a lot of kind of parable language to describe the fact that people can hear stuff at times, but not actually embrace it in their heart. And so if you want the, the one second answer to our question today, how do you read the Bible? You must read the Bible with the desire to listen to the voice of Jesus and follow him as your Lord. That's that's what the pursuit of Jesus in Scripture is. And so with this in mind, let's jump right in and begin unpacking. It's a very short verse, 
uh, but it has a lot of significant implication about uh, James and what he teaches us about reading the word. And we're going to continue to use this, this uh, vernacular of king or kingship because truly to see Jesus as Lord means he, he's crowned the king of our lives. And we know that he came to the earth a humble servant and died the lamb of God, but one day he's going to return as the king. And this is kind of our actions now, the way we pursue Jesus now as king, are kind of a foretelling of what it's going to be like when, when Jesus does return and he makes all things right perfectly and permanently. And so in the first and only thing I want to talk about today, when Jesus, or maybe we could even say for some of us, if Jesus, right? Because we might be wrestling with this question this morning. When Jesus is the king of your life, you'll deeply believe that hearing from God in his word will always require you to do something for God in your life. This is the, the elongated version of what James says in 122. He says, do not merely listen to the word. And here he's referencing scripture. He's referencing the truth of who God says he is. Do not just listen to the word or merely listen to it and so deceive yourselves. He connects it very strongly to this, this doing point. Do what it says. Now, this verse, the book of James, much like the context of what we're looking at in the book of Philippians, it's very easy to just take these verses and not connect them to the larger story of what's going on. And here you have an interesting thing that's going on. We're talking about lordship in Philippians. right? Here's been our pedigree. Lordship in Philippians. You have Jesus himself in John saying that his teaching, his truth is not his own. He speaks with the authority of his Father in heaven because he is God, right? You have this authority pedigree. And then here, on the back end, after Jesus is gone and the kingdom is being fleshed out in the world, you have people like James saying, we need to listen to what Jesus has said and do what he says. And so this, is, this verse is a much larger uh, teaching. It's part of a much larger teaching where James is beginning to identify the differences between true and false religion or, or genuine faith is what we would say today. And in it, he warns us against what is perhaps the most common outcome of what it means to deny Jesus as Lord. And here I'm speaking particularly to those of us who profess Jesus as Lord. I'm not saying those who don't acknowledge God. I'm saying the tension we've been identifying over these past weeks is those of us who, who claim to pursue Jesus, but then really have a difficulty in following him like this. What he's saying is there's a bit of a falseness connected to this, this paradigm. He's saying if a person can, can know Jesus and, and hear truth in the word and amongst God's people and, and through the myriad of voices he speaks to us through in the world, if we can constantly hear the voice of Jesus, but we have minimal or no desire to, to follow that voice or dial into that voice, the language we've been using is seeing Jesus as Savior, not Lord, right? We don't prescribe to the Lordship. Then he says, according to James, you've, you've likely deceived yourself into believing that you have a kind of faith or a genuine faith that isn't genuine. And we know that this is true because so we read about this in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 a few weeks ago. Where does James get the kind of gumption or the authority to make a statement like this? Well, it's rooted in the foundation of the command that Jesus gives us to, to make disciples. The point of this is no matter where you go in the New Testament, one of the main marks of a disciple is it's a person who's trying to follow Jesus. And they have an ever-growing, not perfect, hear me, an ever-growing desire to obey Jesus' teachings in the Word and to help others obey them too. That is the essence of what a disciple is. And so what you've got James saying here is a person who has a true religion, when this is true and evident in their lives, they're going to want to live like Jesus did with their heart, not just you know, external deeds or actions. There's going to be substance behind what they do. They're going to want to help others experience that same truth and grace and hope and joy and peace. That's one side of the coin. On the flip side, though, a person is practicing a false religion when they claim to follow Jesus, but they do not place the proper value on knowing him through the word. That's where the disconnect is that he talks about. 
And so this, this uh, warning, a very gracious one, it comes in the context of the description of this word religion. Religion, we need to say this, is a negative word in our culture today. You will likely not hear anybody speak about this term in a positive way anymore. In fact, evangelicals years ago, they created a pithy statement to address this. They'd say things like, you know, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. And that is true. However, as far as the Christian faith goes, a relationship in Christ. But the word religion, although it has a bit of a muddied tone in our culture today, in, in the teaching we're looking at today, it actually has a very pure tone. And if you were to look at history, it's only as of late that the word religion carries a negative connotation with it. So I say this just to say, if you hear that word religion and you start shuddering like this, I want you to know that that is not the type of religion that James speaks of. What, what he's talking about would be the modern day synonym of how we describe faith today. And so what he says here is a true religion, a true faith is evidenced when a person desires to hear God in scripture and then they choose to honor God in their lives in light of his truth. This is going to be a, a, a key truth, especially as we talk about change. If you want to know one of the ways you work out your salvation with fear and trembling under heaven, it's not that you earn your salvation. We'll talk about that next week. It's not that you have to do something to make God love you. It's just that as God begins working in your life and he begins showing you things, one of the ways that we do change is that we start listening to what God says. And naturally, when God speaks into our hearts and remolds our lives, that starts to create Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-fueled change. Important connection here. It's a statement today that becomes the foundation of change in our lives for next week. Now, unfortunately, in the first century world, much like our modern world, there have always been people who did not fully make the connection between how having a genuine love for Jesus should begin to shape how you live life. And so this teaching was literally given to a group of people who had become comfortable talking about the things of God. What we said earlier is that uh, this is the, the concept of knowledge in the modern world. They are comfortable with accumulating knowledge about God without having a love for God. Very different type of faith that that produces. And so James says a Christian who gets comfortable hearing truth like this, but just doesn't want to reorient their life around it, they step into that Second Timothy reality we spoke about. They, they live as if God wants to be known, but they can never find God. God says, here I am, look to me. But they're at this place in their life where they've been set apart by God to pursue truth and find Jesus. Yet they are very comfortable in looking for these things, but not really finding them at all. They are always searching and never arriving. That's what Paul says. And that's a very precarious place to be in life. I don't know about you, but I prefer clarity in my life. I want to know that when Jesus says he loves me, I kind of want there to be an end game in that. Um, there is something beneficial about experiencing the tangible reality of the love of Jesus. And this is kind of what happens here is when we disconnect ourselves from that voice, we start getting fuzzier and fuzzier expressions of who Jesus is and how he relates to us. And the root of this problem, it's worth restating it. It is not contrary to modern religious belief that God does not want to be known. I mean, you cannot read the story of the Bible and say, this is a guy who does not want to be known. That is not the nature of God. Yes, there are things that are mysterious and awe-inspiring about God, but they're not, they're not so mysterious and so awe-inspiring that God is like a, bluzzy, a, a fuzzy amoeba. We don't, we don't know. He's some spiritual thing floating out there. What's happening here is you have people in our modern world that actually prefer to, to stay in the darkness. They want to remain in the dark and not see the light. So to keep us from falling victim to this self-deception, what James says is, listen, there's a lordship test you've got to take. If you want to know whether or not you have a true or pure religion, you can know it by this simple statement. Re understanding Jesus' authority, recognizing his teaching, and, and seeing that as a positive thing, that his authority is used to bring about goodness and grace in our life. This is the subtext of the statement I'm about to say. Try to pat it. You want to know if you have a true or a pure religion? Then what James says is, 
Genuine faith is not validated by what you hear from God's word. There's a point of this that matters. It's really validated by what you do with what you hear from God's word. At some point, the hearing shapes action. And the main evidence that you are pursuing Jesus as Lord is a growing desire to hear God's truth in your heart. It's, it's at the place where you, you kind of hunger for the light a little bit. And when you feel like God isn't speaking to you, you miss his voice. This is what he's saying here. You get to the place where you have heard God's voice steadily enough, the call of our shepherd, that you actually want to perk up the spiritual ears of your heart and pursue him when he does speak to you. And James is in good company with this teaching. I I say this not for effect, but I say this just to show you that, and I could have listed probably 25 more verses here that make this connection. Other authors in the Bible speaking to different people in different times of history have described this same truth to people, to God's people. Uh, Exodus 24, 3, when Moses, right, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said we will do. So you have this, this really strong command where Moses is speaking to God's people about what he says. And God's people say, we should, we should do that. We should do that. That's a really good thing. Right? Super th- thick theological connection. God said this. Let's try to do this. Paul in Romans 2, 13, For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. You can hear about the grace and the redemption of Jesus, but if it does not take effect in your heart and it's not affirmed by your spirit at some point, you know, head, heart, and hands, if you don't start to pursue this or press into this, the declaration of righteousness is missed. That's what happens here. And that's why some people can hear about Jesus' grace and, and just turn away from it. Jesus in Matthew seven twenty four on a, on a more positive side of the fence, says this, Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And he's giving us a parable there about how to, how to live in the kingdom. And so you, you have people teaching about following God. You have God's people proclaiming that they want to follow God. And then you have at the epicenter of this in the Gospels and other teaching by Jesus, where he, he makes this connection about hearing and following God, listening and putting these truths into practice. It's like building your house on a, on a rock, an immovable, immutable rock, as opposed to maybe building your house on the foundation of, of sand or something that is mushy, that really does not provide stability or peace or hope or joy in life. And so no matter where you go, all throughout the Bible, you will find this theme. There is an inseparable connection between hearing and obeying God's word. And the vernacular we have used here over these past weeks is seeing God as Lord and and believing he's Savior. Not just, you know, experiencing all the love, but also saying love at some point should cause a really deep desire to serve the one that you claim to love. We would say the most healthiest relationships we have under heaven are like this, right? If I were to say, like, hey, I really love my brother, but I don't, like, ever talk to him or say anything about him, or when he needs me, I'm never around, we would say, like, is that really love? Or what, what is that? It might, it might be like some kind of quasi-relationship, a form of relationship, but it would not be rooted in the type of love that genuine relationship produces. And that's why the pursuit of Jesus here really is an indication of whether or not you genuinely love him. So what's ironic about this and I think there's, there's an irony not necessarily based on the, the knowledge of the word. There's an irony in the way that we have um, understood or sometimes maybe even been taught the way that we come to the place in our lives in the modern church and how we do things. I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a tension here in oftentimes how we have been motivated in Christian context to do something for God. And the, the root of the, the way or the authority, we might say, that God says we should do things for him. Radically different. 
So you'd assume here, going back to the context of chapter 1, or even Philippians 2, right? We don't start with Jesus uh, with Paul saying, like, one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. That is the tail end teaching on, on a whole chapter that's, that proclaims how great the love of God is. And then what happens is it's like he's saying it's kind of preposterous that God could be this amazing and loving to us, yet we just then act like he doesn't, doesn't matter or he doesn't care. We don't care about him. You get the same kind of thing going on here. Here you have this, this strong declaration of hearing and doing, but it's connected to something that is, that, that is not just doing. James doesn't approach motivating us by telling us to just do something. Because there's a, an understanding of what we would call good gospel theology, this comes in the context of a teaching that is very different as far as the motivation goes. He's not just telling us to do something for God. What he's saying is, he's, he's well aware, we might even say, that motiv- motivating us to do something for God is much deeper than just getting us to do something for God. Let me say that again. Motivating us, and that's true in this room, or your community groups, or when you're reading the scripture on your own, we cannot be motivated by just being told to do something for God. That might work for a season. It's much, much deeper than that. The motivation for doing something for God is always connected to getting us to fall more in love with God. I want to say that again. Getting us to fall more in love with God will genuinely motivate us to do something great for God. Because when there is an affinity or a preference or a desire, a recognition of who Jesus is in your life, when his beauty and his majesty is more than just words on a page, that starts to do something in your inner workings. It starts to reshape the psyche of your heart, your mind, and your spirit. And then there is a, there's a different type of devotion, a different type of duty, a different type of loyalty, a different type of love that comes out of that. Preceding doing something, always, it, it first calls us to focus on having a pure love for God. No matter what that is, whatever what the do is, and there are lots of do's in the Bible, if you really want to do something well with a right heart for God, it must be preceded by a, by a deeper level of love for God. Because loving God enough to follow him as Lord can be very difficult. You've got, oh, we should all amen that. Let's be honest. I'll be the first one. Loving God well and pursuing him as Lord sometimes is just difficult. I mean, can we be honest about that? Sometimes culture right, calls us fools for this. Or sometimes we don't even need a push from culture. Sometimes we just get up and don't want to follow him as, as Lord. The push is us. We just shove ourselves right off the cliff. It can be very difficult. And there is good reason for this tension. If you, if you read scripture, you'll know that it's somewhat unnatural for us to embrace the things of God on our own. It actually is unnatural for us to embrace the things of God on our own. This is why we call them the things of God. Truly doing so, it first requires that the Holy Spirit births this desire in us, right? That, that God begins working in our lives. He's, he's tilling the soil of our hearts to bring about what he wants in us. And when that starts happening, when we begin to experience and know God like this, then we will more likely want to follow him on his terms. And what I would also say is there's a different level of fuel that allows us to begin permanently adopting following Jesus on his terms. So if you struggle with, you know, anger or anxiety or or stress or uh, depression or emotional challenges or I don't know, maybe you're just never satisfied, whatever, whatever it is. What happens is if you start to recognize what Jesus says about satisfaction or anxiety or being down or the healthy nature of relationships, what happens is he starts shaping your life in that direction. And then what happens is you start permanently adopting those, those deep Jesus-centered philosophies. And what you'll likely find is joy in those areas. You want to have joy in relationship? We've already said this in Philippians 1. Then understand, as believers, understand what Jesus says about relationship. Understand what healthy expectations are, what good boundaries are. It, it creates a catalytic movement in our heart for relationship. 
This is true with every aspect of Christian lordship. With the right heart, obedience doesn't happen. Obedience might happen like aesthetically for a season, but it doesn't happen permanently. Or it gets reduced to following some set of rules. You start to see why people in the world say, well, the book, that Bible is just like a book of riddles and myths and, and rules. It's ridiculous. You can see why some people might even have these ideas about the, the, the living word. And if you function under that type of faith, what happens is at, at some point, if you, if you lack the heart when you pursue God, you're just going to get broken. That's what's going to happen. It, it is that whole idea that Jesus talks about about the kingdom or the world, I'm paraphrasing here, it's kind of like a heavy burden or a heavy yoke. And he's saying, listen, give, give me that yoke. Let me take that burden. Let me be the lifting, the lifting agent for your faith. Let me do the heavy work. You, you follow in the coattails of my grace. You want to be like me? Let me do the lifting in your life. But pursue me. That's the key, right? Pursue Jesus as he carries the weight for us. Don't just expect him to be something in us and, and not have the desire to relate to him or know him. The problem with understanding hearing and doing like this is that it typically creates this attitude in a person where they might even genuinely try to live as if Jesus is the Lord of their life without the love and grace of our Savior in his heart. They focus on, oh, Lord, without Savior. And that's just, that's a, that's a different problem in another direction. You will never, never know Jesus fully as your Lord if you miss his love and grace in your life. Those two things feed each other. And what that produces is a very dangerous form of religion. I've used the term in this room before, begrudging lordship. Think about like doing something in your life, whatever it is, you don't really want to do it, but you do it. And it's like gritting your teeth. That's what this type of religion produces. It's like when a Christian decides to do something for God, or maybe they even make it a priority to be in scripture, because that's just what they're told to do, or they're supposed to do, as opposed to getting in a place in your life where you say like, you know what? Um, I am really having a bad week and I have been extra anxious. And I know like Jesus says a lot about what it means to be anxious. And I'm not going to grip my teeth anymore. I'm just going to try to, as feeble as it might be some days, I'm going to try to get into the word and say, hey, God, I'm very anxious and I don't know why. Help, help me here. Help me understand something about my life. There's something different there when you actually approach God with genuine need. And you recognize he doesn't treat you like a project. He says, hey, I love you. And I actually would like you to know my peace. Let's chuck this, chuck this anxiety thing out the window for a little bit. Let me help you experience the peace of my son. That's what ha- when, you, when you taste that, what happens is you start to hunger for God more deeply. When he begins to remold the heart like that, you say, man, this is actually really great. I don't know why I've not been doing this for so long. For others, though, what happens is there, there might be a, a begrudging nature that says, like, they're just not going to do it. This is kind of what we said the first week. What happens is, is there is something in the periphery of their life that they know God wants them to deal with, but they don't want to deal with it. For them, the issue is, is truly a matter of authority. No pun intended. Jesus is Lord, question mark. That's why we've titled it this way. What happens is, is they count the cost. They know Jesus says this, whatever this is. And they have counted the cost, which is something Jesus says to every disciple before we enter his kingdom. Count the cost of following me. And what they say is, it's just too much. Can't do that. I'm out. Or I'm going to choose to follow you in some areas of my life, but not all areas. What happens is they want Jesus as Savior in some areas, but not necessarily as the King or the Lord of their spirituality, their, their morality. And so what happens is they start to practice a different kind of religion. It's selective obedience. They're okay with Jesus being a part of their lives in some places. Somewhat conveniently, I have said this before, it's never in the places that challenge comfort structures, ever. It's usually in the places that, that enhance comfort. Um, others on the other side of the spectrum, they might try to change for a little bit in their own strength, but it never sticks. They, they really like, 
it's kind of like the parable that talks about the, the, the seed that's planted and it just like explodes and then it's dead in like three days. Sometimes if you try to pursue uh, Jesus this way, you'll, you'll have a challenge in your life because at some point the, the enthusiasm, the vigor that you have on Monday morning is really, it's, it's kind of put, puttering out by Thursday. It's, an, it's a religious adjustment, not a heart deep change. And so the bottom line in all of this is when we hear from God in the word, James is teaching, John's teaching, and Philippians all saying, all talking about the same subject from different areas. If we hear from God, if we believe God is Lord and Savior, then it should shape how we live for Him. It, there is a deep connection between our understanding, our hearing, and, and our doing. Each one validates the other, and one without the other, frankly, will invalidate the other. Doing without, without lordship is a problem. Lordship without doing is a problem. The balance we strive for in life is, I love you, Jesus. And I'm going to be, I I am now in you. I carry the title of a son or a daughter of God because I've experienced you. And now I'm going to live for you. This is a connection, a strong one. And later on in this chapter, um, I've never really taught on this verse, but I should at some point. We get this really powerful statement. Like all this stuff James is saying ends up at this place where he says, because ultimately our faith without works is dead. So, This highlights a real tension we will face as we seek to live as if Jesus is the Lord of our lives. There's no idealism in what we've been talking about in the past month, yet just a common desire to share the struggle and try to overcome it. The real challenge in obeying the command to be doers of the word in the modern church is that we've inherited a a culture of of what I like to call passive Christianity. And, And let me explain what I mean by this. I'll be brief. Passive Christianity essentially says for, for a great many people in, in the Western church, Christianity has become the, the hearing piece. And so you can see this evidenced in, in what a lot of the modern church world looks like. When we did our study in, in, on uh, Fixed on Discipleship many years ago, we talked about how the, the common thread of where most Western Christians, this is what they connect to. When they understand disciple-making, it's almost always connected to the hearing or the listening environment. And think about this. Just look at the structure of the way we've delivered the, the Christian body, the church. Um, we encourage Bible study. We encourage gathering in a room like this and, and listening to the word being teach. We, we are passively listening uh, to worship. We have midweek meetings at times addressing topics about God. Or topics, not toppings. He's not a Sunday. But uh, topics about God. All of, these, all of these environments create what we call passive learning environments. And there's nothing wrong with the passive learning environment. There's no naivety or, or idealism here. Those are all really great things. They are wonderful things. And I'm thankful that we live in a world where we can still practice these things. So please don't hear me saying like this stuff is all bad. Those environments provide great and in some cases unique opportunities to engage with the word and the faith. I'm not throwing it under the bus. What I am saying though is that there are times in people's lives where that is all that pursuing Jesus becomes. It becomes involving themselves in, in a passive environment where they hear and accumulate knowledge but don't necessarily apply. They get uh, really in tune with consuming information about God. Think about this. You, don't, you can actually be a, a vital member of restoration, sort of. You can, you can never, ever, ever miss a talk and never, ever show up in this room. A website gets like over 2,000 hits a month. Think about that. We've never had 2,000 people in this room, ever. Not that I know of, all right, uh, or in this theater. But you can see there's a lot of this going on in our world. There, you, we have people we don't even know, probably in like Wyoming or something, that are, that are listening to stuff that's going on here. 
we are in, in a season in the world where, um, I don't know what that is, but I'm just going to press on, right? We're in a season in the world where we've been blessed with some of the greatest Christian learning environments on earth. We have, um, we have great and healthy churches through the planting movement. We have sermon podcasts, Bible study tools, seminaries, Bible colleges, and the list goes on. All of these things create a subtle attitude. There's nothing wrong with the thing. There's something potentially wrong with the way we consume the thing. And what I think it's done is, in our world, it's created a, a faith that is oftentimes consumed by knowing more about God without taking the time to meditate and experience on what we've actually learned about God. Hear me say that. What happens is, is we, we get a truth this week, and then we got five more podcasts we're listening to, or six other sermons, and we get another truth next week, and it's like the cat chasing the laser beam. We've never actually stopped and said, holy moly, what does it mean to experience peace? And to take a month of our lives and say, peace. We just jump to the next thing, oftentimes. We're in the, the, we're in the learning environment, and the learning environment oftentimes can be disconnected from the actual uh, the disciple-making element. So to follow Jesus as Lord means we have to, at some point, hear about peace and then, and then try to experience it. In other words, what we hear about our Father in Heaven is supposed to have a real-world effect in our lives on Earth. That, I think, is a good way to look at it. If the things we hear about our Father in Heaven, no matter what way we're hearing them, personal devotional study, corporate study like this, um, or even service, whatever it is, if we are hearing these things about our God, is it actually creating a real-world effect in our lives? I'll sh- share this last thing. It's, a, uh, it's an illustration, but a true one. You were here two years ago. Hopefully you remember this, because um, I think it's, it's probably the best, and I would say at this point the only example I have of what I want to mention here. I have a really good friend who's a missionary in India. And he was talking to me. This is uh, uh, many years ago. We were talking about this challenge and how in a, in a culture like ours, which is, we would say, moving towards post-Christendom, meaning like Christianity is still healthy in many areas, but the idea of like radical, explosive, booming Christianity doesn't seem to be happening in the U.S. anymore. We see it happening in places like China and India and Africa. But here, you're, you're beginning to deal with the effects of what has happened when a, when a culture has had the Christian faith in their midst for a while. It creates some challenges. In, in India, th- my friend is working in an area where there is not a strong presence of the gospel. In some places, no presence at all. And so they're, we're dealing with two different challenges in the learning environment. They don't have a, a seminary and a Bible college and podcasts and iPhones and iPads to get all this. It, the, the information is at a premium over there. Let me, put it, let me put it that this way. So the knowledge is not the problem. They're, they're on the other end of the spectrum where they're fighting to create spaces for this to be present in the lives of people coming to Jesus. And so they have, you know, any good leader should do this. They have taken a challenge and they've tried to turn crisis into opportunity. And what they said is since we don't have this problem yet, maybe we will in 150 years, since we don't have this problem yet, we have started helping the people who come to Jesus. We've identified this term and we tell them to avoid sit and watch Christianity. What I'm, what I'm referring to here is passive Christianity. And he said they work really hard on building a wall between the hearing and the doing parts of the faith, between what, uh, what James is saying here. And he said, like, a, a, a talk or a small group meeting, it begins with them talking about a truth from, about who God is. But they connect that learning immediately to doing something in light of that truth. So if they read about something where God cares for the hurting, or the burdened, or the poor, or the outcast, or the downtrodden, they have a challenge each week to go out and find somebody who is poor or hurting or broken or downtrodden. And they try to be the grace of Jesus to that person. They don't even have 19 more classes about it. They just go out and try to love somebody. We know the 20th class is when it really happens. That's where the ministry magic happens, right? Or they'll get to this place where on the internal side, the identity side, 
they'll read passages of scripture where where they realize how much our good good father we just sang about this deeply cares for us and so they just go out and they try to deeply care for somebody now i want you to think about that this is what we call obedience-based christianity or discipleship it's kind of the essence of what i think paul is talking about in philippians what jesus says in john hey you'll know me by my teachings at some point these things are going to be real they're going to change you that's what he says at some point what happens is we separate the line and we we kind of blurry the line enough to where we we understand that what we hear from the word actually must begin to shape what we do and there's there's a really interesting story there but i also think there's an interesting story here and i want to involve you in a little bit of the behind the scenes theology and philosophy of what takes place in a room like this if you have been with us for a while and many of you have been with us for a very long time this is likely not going to be a, a radically new idea to you in fact you might have in wisdom and discernment already picked up on some of these rhythms each week during our response time, we challenge you to think about two things. What is Jesus saying to you, and, and what are you going to do about it? You know, we, we don't like not have anything better to put up there. It's because there's, there's actually a really pointed reason in that, and it's taken directly from what we're talking about here. What we want the connection to be as we leave a room like this, which we will do momentarily, is what we have heard today and what we're hearing each week. And the way God is going to speak to us as we leave this place, we want us to constantly be connecting what he says to what we might need to do. There's a purposeful reason for this, taken directly from the truth we study today. So as we close today, I, I want to ask you to ask God, where, where do you fall on the hearing-doing spectrum? I'm not talking about doing as a utility. I'm not talking about hearing um, from the angle of the consumption of knowledge disconnected from a vibrant relationship in Jesus. There is always maturity in the tension. I want, this is the one book I want to write in my life before I die, and the title is called There is Maturity and the Tension. And this is a perfect example of it. The tension says, what does it mean to hear from God and pursue God to serve him well? In the middle of those two end caps is what we call the Christian journey. And we'll spend all of our days figuring this out together. But for today, let's figure it out a little more intently. What are you thinking about when it comes to listening and doing? Ask yourself this day, if Jesus has spoken to you today, what you have heard when it comes to following him, what will you do? It's Because it's one thing to just hear about Jesus every week, no matter what the tool is. But it's another thing, an entirely other thing, to hear about him in a way that it begins to, to cause you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I'll just follow Paul's line of thought. It's, it's very different to experience the things that we talk about in a regular week. Uh, that's the kind of religion, no pun intended, we want you to have here. So as we move into response time, ask yourself, when it comes to how you approach Jesus and his words, what is Jesus saying to you? And what do you intend to do about it? Cross that bridge with me this week and pray with me now. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for, for the, the gentle warning. We've got just in this past month, we've talked about three powerhouse teachings that really highlight the, the reality and the difficulty and if I may be so blunt, the sweetness of these, these authority commands. Jesus tells us to know him in the word. And that can sound hard and abrasive in one sense, but it can also be sweet and amazing in another if we actually understand the motive behind why your son gives us this teaching, why Paul reiterates it, and why James layers it into the foundation of a new and growing first century church. So today we ask that you would help us to hear from you clearly, and to know you deeply. And I pray, Lord, as we move into our, our response time, that these meditation points would be, they would be spaces or zones that we could stop and intentionally reflect 
in each in each space on who we are in you. Bless this time now we have in response. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Um, for the next couple of minutes.